Uh, I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Lord our God, thank you so much for shining light uh, for our feet, a, a, a light for our path. Thank you for showing us the things to come, not to frighten us, but to encourage us because the victory is yours. And all power and authority are yours. And you will take your stand upon this earth at the last. The dead shall rise and we will forever be with you. We thank you for that certain promise. And so help me, Lord God, this evening to teach well. Help us to take encouragement from what we read, even though it's about battle and war. Help us to not be afraid, but to be encouraged all the more. Uh, help us to have teachable hearts tonight, Lord God. May your spirit have full sway in all that is said and done. And we pray these things in Yeshua's name. Amen? Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. Welcome also to Yo in Northville, to Donna, Marilyn, and Marianne. Good to have you guys all watching. If you want, take a moment, hit the share button. I don't know if there's a thing like that on YouTube, but on Facebook, you can share it. So, and again, welcome to all of you who are watching on YouTube. Okay, Revelation chapter 19, we're, we will be picking up at verse 11, but let me just go over a couple of things by way of review and to kind of set things up for tonight. I'm going to read my introductory paragraph for us. It is paradoxical to think of the gentle carpenter and rabbi from Nazareth as the same one who will descend from heaven on a white horse accompanied by a great army with a sword to vanquish the kings of the earth and to reign over the nations with a rod of iron. Imagine how hard that adjustment might have been for John who spent three years with Yeshua, walking around in Israel, taking meals together, the same one he talked with and walked with, touched, he knew in his humanity, is the same one he sees as the coming cosmic conqueror. That might take a bit of an adjustment, wouldn't you say? And it's going to be a big adjustment. It is a paradox when we think about the gentle carpenter from Nazareth as the same one who is the coming conqueror, that the one who we talk about as the lamb is coming back as the lion. Wow, how does that work out, that the same one who is the lamb is the lion? So, But he is all in all. So it's going to be great. Uh, welcome to Wilbur, to Helena, and to Jean. Uh, good to have you all watching. All right. So the first verses in this chapter were all about the downfall of Babylon, right? Babylon the Great, the great harlot. Um, and you don't generally think about people saying hallelujah at, at a destructive thing. For example, how distasteful was it on September 11th, 2001, when our nation was attacked, the World Trade Center destroyed, 
the Pentagon attacked, and people in the street in East Jerusalem and in Gaza were praising Allah for the downfall of what they saw as the beginning of the downfall of the United States. But that is an earthly, what I would say, perversion of what will be a legitimate rejoicing when the Lord himself comes and brings justice to the world, vanquishes the wicked, but it'll be his doing. He and his army, not some terrorists hijacking airplanes. Uh, this is the difference between true religion and false man-made religion. False man-made religion, we got to make it happen. We gotta, it's up to us to do it, and we're going to do all this, and we're going to make this happen. What does the scripture say? God will bring all these things to pass. And he says, vengeance is mine. want to take a moment to welcome a few others who have come in. Patsy, uh, Matt, uh, <clears throat> oh, and uh, Wilbur is in Savannah, Georgia. Okay, and Grace, <laughs> who I guess likes this. What's not to like? Who knows whose number that is? Anybody here? Just wondering. Yeah, I guess no. No Lions fans in the house. I'm sure some of you will know. I'll give you a hint. He went to U of M. He's on defense. There you go. Aiden Hutchinson. All right. Okay. And uh, welcome to Peggy, who's watching us uh, on vacation with Tom in Mexico. So... The initial thing was this, this contradistinction. The uh, Yeshua coming gently, but he's the first time coming in power, the second time. A great hallelujah lifted up over the destruction of Babylon. Babylon is more than just a city. And I don't think it's going to be the Babylon in Iraq, which is essentially uninhabited. Um, Saddam Hussein wanted to rebuild it and make it into like a second Babylon kind of thing, and it never really happened. Um, but it is a city, but it's not probably not Babylon. And contrary to some people's thinking, it isn't New York City or Washington, D.C. It isn't Jerusalem, because God doesn't come to destroy Jerusalem. He comes to defend Jerusalem, that's what Zechariah tells us. I tend to think it's Rome. And I think it's not just the city of Rome, I think it's the whole Roman institution, both religiously and secularly, a Roman institution. We may very well see, and I could be wrong on this, we could very well see the revival of a Roman empire under the leadership of somebody who initially is going to be thought to be like a superhero, just the greatest thing since sliced bread, until he shows his true colors, and we find out it's the Antichrist. And he will have a confederation of kings that will be working cooperatively for a period of time, but then as we saw in previous chapters, he basically takes over the show. And um, 
And we had, uh, in the previous chapter, a woman riding on top of the beast. The woman is dressed in scarlet and purple, holding a golden cup full of immoralities. I tend to think that's Roman Catholicism. Uh, it's called a harlot because, biblically speaking, a harlot was somebody who ought to have been faithful and was unfaithful. And since we know it's not Jerusalem, Jerusalem is not built on seven hills and surrounded by many waters, Rome is. Rome is actually known as the city of seven hills. Um, and the more you study the history of the Roman Catholic Church, the worse it gets. So, um, But I'm not going to spend our evening tonight talking about problems with the history of the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about the return of the Lord. So in the first four verses, uh, it's God is bringing an end to the harlot. And he says specifically um, that he is going to avenge his bondservants on her. So this harlot has been responsible for the killing of, who knows, countless numbers of faithful men and women of God. Uh, again, if you study the history of the Roman church, um, just slaughtering of anybody who would not toe the line on papal authority and on papal dec decrees. Uh, we get to verses 5 through 9. Um, again, uh, a voice from heaven like thunder, but it's a different sort of hallelujah. It says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. So there's the harlot who was unfaithful, who by all rights ought to have been faithful. Then there's the true bride. And that's Yeshua, Jesus' true followers across the ages. And it says, And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Wow. So we've got a war and a wedding a marriage, and a military conflict. That's as much alliteration as I'm going to try. Um, and the praises in heaven come antiphonally. There's a praise for this, and then there are responsive voices here, like the 24 elders respond to the voice of the angel, etc. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's nothing like a Jewish wedding. And there's going to be nothing like that Jewish wedding, let me tell you. Uh, and the catering, oh my goodness, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, okay. Um, so, but the, the worship comes antiphonally, a voice of praise and an answer of praise to God. And you see this sometimes in high church. You'll see this in synagogue uh, liturgy, antiphonal praise. Uh, I mentioned last week that at my hometown synagogue where I grew up, it was a big, beautiful synagogue, and there was a choir. And you couldn't see them because 
they were up on stairs behind tall windows like those, though narrower, but they weren't windows because uh, it wasn't outside. It was just uh, stairways going up. And the choir would sing from there and from the opposite side, and there were veils over those openings. So it was kind of shrouded in mystery. Praise coming from this side, answered on that side. And you know, growing up, I didn't know the Lord. I didn't have the Holy Spirit. Going to Saturday morning services was boring. I went because I had to go, didn't want to go. I couldn't appreciate it. But then, <clears throat> about a year after I became a believer, I was back home in Los Angeles, and I thought, I'm going to go visit my synagogue and, and see what it's like now on this side of things, knowing what I know now. And I tell you, it was beautiful. Now I could appreciate it. Because even though they're not believing in Yeshua, they're chanting the Psalms. And it was just like, wow, that was beautiful. And I'm reading the prayers, and this is beautiful. And I'm really... The Holy Spirit is just moving in me. I'm, this is fantastic. I, how come, you know, I never appreciated this. And then I look up and I'm looking around and everybody else is, oh, are we done yet? You know, how's your son? You know, it's just, just it, it broke my heart. All right, uh, let me take another moment <laughs> as I've been going on and on. Waxing not so eloquent. Others have come to join us. Bob, good evening, and Madeline, Elaine in Florida, Michael. <laughs> Thank Michael uh, said, nice hoodie. <laughs> Go Lions. All right. Uh, Mike, are you over at the dealer or are you home? Uh, just kind of curious. All right. Um, also, Michael in Virginia in Columbus, Ohio. Om Yisrael Chai. All right. Great. So now think about the way we do things when once a month when we bring our Torah scroll out and one of us reads from the Torah. We don't just read from the Torah. We have prayers uh, that lead into that. The leader says, Baruch et Adonai Hamvarach, and the congregation says, Baruch Adonai Hamvarach Le'olam Va'ed. So it's antiphonal, right? Bless the Lord who is blessed. Blessed be the Lord who is blessed forever and ever, right? It's antiphonal. Um, I can't wait to see what the worship is going to be like in heaven. It's just, I, we can't even begin to imagine. So, um, and my notes in, from verses 5 to 9, I said, note that the cause for praise and rejoicing is not only in the final destruction of Babylon, the great harlot, but in the consummation of the age, the marriage supper of the Lamb, out with wickedness, in with righteousness. Um, all right, well, let's go on to verse uh, 11 and following. Actually, let's look at verse 10, just a, again, just a bit of review. Verse 10, okay, Mike's at home, okay. Welcome to Aaron, good to have you watching as well. All right, verse 10. It's the angel that's been speaking with John. And John says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, do not do that. 
I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus, Yeshua, is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, all the prophets spoke about this coming Messiah. So if we're believing in Jesus, we're believing correctly. We are believing the voices and the words of the prophets. Okay? Uh, it says, I fell at his feet to worship him. Remember, John is writing this down. He didn't have to write that down. You see how honest and transparent he's being. He's writing through the leading of the Holy Spirit, but it's not like automatic writing or any weird stuff like that. He's writing. And he feels led of the Holy Spirit to show, to be very transparent about everything, to be very open. I fell at his feet to worship him, and I had to be rebuked for that. Um, and the one John falls down before is the one whose voice is described in verse 5 as coming from the throne, and again speaks to him in verse 9. He is unquestionably the angelic being. Okay? The angelic being. It's confirmed when we get to chapter 22 where the same thing happens. And the one before whom he falls to worship is specifically described as an angel. So John is going to be rebuked twice for it. He's told not to do that. Angels are not to be worshipped. Angels shouldn't be worshipped. Saints shouldn't be prayed to. There is one God Paul told us, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that is Messiah, the man, Messiah Yeshua. One mediator. Um, so angels aren't to be worshipped, only God. Uh, this is why it's all the more significant that Yeshua accepted worship while he was on earth. He accepted worship. And all throughout the Revelation, we see praise being offered to the Lamb along with the Lord, the Father. He, he's given the same titles, the same attributes, receives the same level of worship and adoration. So he is equal to the Father in stature. And by the way, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Yeshua receives honor and adulation equal to that of the Father. But the angel calls himself a fellow servant of John's and his brothers. So there is that idea that angels, and we get this also in the book of Hebrews, angels, um, at least some of them, are assigned to help those who are believers, the elect. Um, we don't know specifically how that works out, whether they're protecting our lives or nudging us to do the right thing, <laughs> not the wrong. Perhaps doing battle with demonic spirits that would attack us. Um, remember that Amy Grant song, Angels Watching Over Me? I'm old enough to remember that song. Anyway, who knows what could be happening at any time of day, but that there's an angelic war going on around us. And I don't know about you, but I'm content to not have to watch it play, happening. Um, I've known people who have seen 
these kinds of things happen, and they would be the first to tell you you don't want to see uh, how how awful um, the demons are. All right, so um, let's go on to verses 11 through 16. Continue, and we may be able to finish chapter 19. This evening, miracles still happen. Let's look at verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From I know you've got questions. We're, we're gonna, I'm just reading it. We're going to go back and consider all this stuff. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, Melech Hamlachim, Adonai. Uh, He is king of kings and lord of lords. So we'll stop there. Wow. So John now introduces the next of his visions with, and I saw, right? Verse 17, then I saw. He's introducing a new vision. Um, In this case, he sees heaven opened. Yeshua approaching majestically on a white horse. Now, do you remember early on? There was a rider on a white horse. That's the imposter. That's the counterfeit, right? Satan is a counterfeiter. He, but Yeshua comes now riding on a white horse uh, majestically. He's described as judging and waging war in righteousness. So according to scripture, there is such a thing as a just war. But even common sense would tell you that there must be the possibility of a just war. If not, then all we could ever look forward to is a never-ending cycle of tyrants taking over countries, uh, other tyrants coming over and taking over those tyrants. And there would, if, if there was no ever a justification for war, then the world would just be utter and complete 24-7 chaos for thousands of years. Thankfully, it hasn't been that. Um, why anyone would think they stand a chance warring against the creator is beyond me. But this passage, along with chapter 17, verses 12 through 14, where the kings of the earth take their stand against the Messiah, as Psalm 2 foretold, why would anybody in their right mind want to be part of an army that's going to try to fight against the creator. Well, part of it is I don't think they will be in their right minds. 
I think there is going to be a spiritually demonic insanity and hatred that takes people over. The um, Hamas terrorists who invaded Israel on October 7th, it's reported that many of them were on, I, don't, I forget the name of this drug, it's got nicknames, but it's a particular drug that properly used helps against psychosis. But improperly used, it induces a form of mania and aggression, and it, it, apparently it takes away all fear, so it gives, takes away fear, but it also takes away any kind of human compassion. I forget what this drug is called, but apparently many of them took it. Um, so there's more than one way to be insane and go around slaughtering and killing and be gleeful about it. And by all accounts, the Hamas terrorists, and not just Hamas, a bunch of Palestinians from Gaza in plain clothes, just regular Gazans, were going in with them to attack. And they're all gleeful. So apparently they were taking this drug. But so again, who in their right mind would even think to go to war against the Messiah? But they will. And it's not going to go well for them. Um, I have a note here that we should read Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. So I'm going to obey my instructions. Let's go back to Revelation 1, 12 through 17. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. His arrival on a, on a horse symbolizes that he is coming to conquer and to reign. How did Jesus ride into Jerusalem? On, like he came in on a donkey, didn't he? A, a, an animal symbolizing peace and humility. In the ancient world, a donkey was considered a very humble animal. And a horse was considered an animal of war. He's coming to wage war. What's interesting is, the, and I said this last week, but for, so forgive me if it's, I'm being a bit redundant. Um, the first time Yeshua came, the Jewish people were hoping for a warrior Messiah who would come on a horse and defeat Rome 
and get the tyrants off our backs and establish Israel as once again a sovereign nation, right, with freedom. And he didn't come that way. He came as a lamb. Nowadays, here we are the, in the 21st century, and people are hoping for Jesus who is meek and mellow and cool and hip, you know, who would just love to go have a beer with you and talk about surfing. I don't know. They wanted a warrior. They got a lamb. We want a lamb. We're getting a warrior. In both of his appearances, it's going to be contrary to what the vast majority of people would expect or hope for. Um, all right. By the way, when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he realized he was fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So his first coming, he came peaceably, but it was refused. His first coming was quiet and gentle. His second advent will be earth-shattering. He will come as the lion. All right. Uh, even the white horse symbolizes purity uh, and righteousness. All right. And uh, you remember in Revelation 1, what we just read, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Fire in prophetic literature also symbolizes purity. The many diadems on his head symbolize that Yeshua is king above all earthly kings. All kingdoms are under his kingship. There will be kings, but they will serve the king of kings. The robe in which he is clothed has been dipped in blood. It shows that the lamb who was slain is now the lion who will reign. You like how I did that? Okay. Or not. By the way, take a, I want to take a moment. We've got almost 35 people watching. Um, want to welcome Jean and Jim and Catherine in uh, Queensland, Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. Uh, nice to have you watching, Catherine, uh, uh, week by week. Patrick, uh, Wilbur. All right. Um, and it says he has a name written upon him which what no one will know except himself, and we can presume the Father. Um, Yeshua is referred by three names here. There is a fourth, but it's unknown to us. But he's called three different names here, uh, if you'll note, in these verses. He's called faithful and true. Pistos ke alithinos. Faithful and true. Everything about him is right and good. God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He always fulfills his promises. Every word he speaks is consummate truth. Um, and sometimes truth is uncomfortable to us human beings. Sometimes we'd rather not have to hear the truth. But every word from him is reliable and true. Um, but it's his word, not our feelings, not our sentimentality, that is the ultimate barometer of truth. The fact is that we are a fallen race. And even though we who are in Messiah have the Holy Spirit within us, we still wrestle against the flesh. We still are capable of getting things wrong. Uh, sometimes we elevate our feelings above the word, and that's always a mistake. 
we must always subjugate our feelings where the word is concerned. Our feelings are a God-given gift, but we must not be governed by them, right? They're a gift, but we are expected to steward those gifts. Our emotions can do us good. It helps us to be compassionate towards those who need compassion. It helps us to be firm, even angry without sinning, towards those who need to be dealt with firmly. But we must have self-control. Our feelings do not govern us, or at least they should not govern us. All right. Now he's got another. And the fact that Yeshua is called faithful and true, that kind of, to me, speaks of his deity also. As does the next title. Hologos Tutheu, the word of God. He is God's wisdom and God's purposes manifested. You know, in, this, in, um, in, in some of the Proverbs, and by the way, this is a shameless plug, uh, I really encourage everybody, if you can, join us uh, Wednesday mornings at 6.30 for Proverbs. We have such a wonderful time. Um, so if you want to join our Proverbs study, we do it by Zoom. And uh, if you would like to, uh, email us info at shema.com, say, I need the link to Rabbi Glenn's Proverbs study, and I'll, it'll be forwarded to me. I'll send you the link every Wednesday morning. Uh, we do this. Um, now, next week on Wednesday morning, Kim is going to lead, because I'll be out of, out of town. I might be able to join, but I, I, I don't know. So, what's that? Oh, okay. yeah. But in Proverbs... Wisdom is personified as this righteous, compassionate, wise woman. And, uh, and so in the same way, Yeshua is God, every, the, the very essence of God personified, right? Who, he's, who he is, what he's like, his power, his kindness, his firmness, everything in perfect balance with everything else. In Jewish mysticism, there's kind of a corollary to this called the memra, the idea of the personification of the divine. Well, logos to the Greek-speaking Jew represented that same idea, the personification of the divine. We may even say that Yeshua, together with the Father, gave the Torah at Sinai, since he is eternal like the Father. Yeshua together with the Father, gave the prophets their visions and their words to write down. Um, I have a note here. We're not going to read it tonight, but if you're taking notes, and which is always a good idea, jot this down for yourself. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 17, speaking of the deity of Jesus. Now, the third name that he's called, three out of four, but we don't know what the fourth one is. The third is Basileos, Basileon, Ke Kurios, Kurion, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeshua is the ultimate king who will reign in righteousness over all the earth. And so he, he alone is greater than the sum 
of all the glory and all the power and all the wealth, riches, and wisdom of all earthly kings who ever have lived or will live. Apples and oranges, right? Just nothing compares with him. Uh, he is Lord over all powers and authorities, save the Father, right? The Father is the ultimate. Now, we here in the West, in the 21st century, we have no idea what it's like to live under the reign of a king. Every couple of years, we go to the ballot box and we say what we want. Um, yet for thousands of years, most of the world has lived under kings. And for thousands of years, most of those kings were not especially good. A long litany of wicked, avaricious kings. Uh, for thousands of years, that's all anybody ever knew. I was just thinking about um, the movie Braveheart with Mel Gibson, the actor who plays King Longshanks, uh, Edward, I think, Edward Longshanks. By the way, the, uh, Patrick McGuhan was the actor who played Longshanks. He was also in a Columbo episode. He has a very distinctive accent. He's just a really, really cold-hearted, vicious kid. And, but for most of the world's history, that's what it's been. Most kings have not been good. Um, your life, the quality of your life, depended greatly on whether your king was good and just or malevolent and immoral. But Yeshua is the quintessential king of righteousness. Even those of us who have never known what it's like to live under a king are going to just, we're, we're going to revel in it. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to rejoice, right? Nobody's going to have to tell us that we should kneel in the presence of the king of kings. We're going to want to. Nobody's going to have to tell us, put your crowns at his feet. We're, nobody's going to have to tell us to do that. We're going to be, oh, man, you, you should have all the crowns. You should have all the glory, right? All our love. Um, now, I have a couple of readings here. The first is Psalm 136, 1 through 3. If, if you don't mind, I'll just, I'll read them so you don't have to turn all over the place. But Psalm 136 says this. Hodula Adonai Kitov ki le'olam chasto. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness is everlasting. Well, there's no question Psalm 136 is talking about the Lord, right? I don't know. Yeshua is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is divine. First uh, Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. Again, I'll turn there and read to you. Okay, 8, 5, and 6. Not too far. There we go, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us, oh, as indeed there are many gods, small g, 
and many lords, small l, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Again, so he is accorded deity all across scripture. Also, if you're taking notes, chapter 17, verse 14, which says, these will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And 1 Timothy 6.15, if you'd like to jot that down, 1 Timothy 6.15 says this. Uh, let's see. Talking about uh, keeping God's commandments until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Same words used to describe Yeshua are used to describe the Father. And so when Yeshua says, I and the Father are one, he can do that. All right. The blood-dipped robe that he wears represents his atoning death for the sins of mankind. The sword coming from his mouth and the rod of iron with which he rules means that he wields all authority and will subdue the nations, which by inference then we know will need to be subdued given the fact that he is going to come in the midst of a godless generation. So, it's going to be a wicked and godless generation. The wine press of God's fierce wrath means that in his second coming, Yeshua, Jesus, will also execute judgment against the wicked of mankind. Now, some people are very uncomfortable with that. They have a reimagined Jesus. The Jesus of some of these hipster pastors um, it's just this easygoing, mellow, I forget, was it Rob Bell? Might have been Rob Bell. He's reading this passage and it made him uncomfortable. He says, Lord, Lord what does this mean? And he says, and, and I just could sense God saying to me, well, what do you think it means? Like, Jesus is going to ask Rob Bell for his opinion? Jesus has been reduced to a hipster among a lot of contemporary seeker-sensitive or whatever pastors. Relevant, the whole relevant thing. And maybe... Once upon a time, that movement was sincerely meant to try to attract and draw young people who didn't want old-style church or whatever. Maybe the, maybe the motivation was sincere. But it's lapsed into this laughable entertainment show. Um, let's see how hip and different we can be. 
um, and let's make Jesus to be more like us. I didn't even like those ads that were on TV. He gets us. Well, yeah, he gets us. He knows what's inside the heart of man. It doesn't mean he likes what's inside the heart of man. Oh, he gets us. But it's meant to say, just don't worry about it. He gets you. No, if you're not following Jesus, you should be worried. Because he's going to get you. <laughs> okay. All right. So we may be uncomfortable with the whole imagery of war and blood and judgment. But if you believe that the Genesis narrative of the fall of mankind is actual history, and if you believe, as the scriptures say, that the church probably by this time, right, this is after the God has poured out his bowls, right, um, we will probably have been removed from the earth. I would argue we may very well be those who are with him wearing white robes coming back to do battle. In that regard, I think Tolkien got it right. If, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings series, the third installment, The Return of the King, it's just, and even um, The Two Towers, when Gandalf the White shows up at sunrise, look to the east, right? And there's this huge army on white horses, and everybody's in white. There's a sense in which that that was Tolkien's kind of way of portraying things, but Yeshua is really coming on a white horse, and those with him are coming on white horses and wearing white robes, and you don't think of a robe as something to do battle in. You think of armor and stuff, but this is not going to be a, a typically fought kind of a war. But I tend to think we're going to be part of that army. Might be humans and angels, redeemed humans and angels. Let's go do this. All right. Uh, let's, let's see. All right. And, and again, it says here, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I want to read something to you, then I'll tell you where it's from. If you didn't know, you might think I'm still reading out of Revelation, but I'm not. This is definitely much, much earlier. Listen to these words. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, Jesse being King David's father, so this descendant of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You see the consistency 
of the scriptures across so many centuries. That was Isaiah chapter 11. All right, let's go on. Uh, Let's look at verses 17 and 18. We're back in Revelation chapter 19. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. Are we going to finish tonight? We may very well. All right. Then I saw an angel. Notice, then I saw vision upon vision. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, but before that, there's a supper for the predatory birds. We've had a group of uh, turkey vultures walking around our neighborhood for about two months now. Six of them. And they're getting bigger every week. It's like, wow. And around Thanksgiving time, I go, they don't realize it's Thanksgiving. They're getting big. Now they're big. They're big. They're turkey vultures. They're not regular turkeys. So I don't even want to know what they eat. They're probably eating dead stuff, dead animals and stuff. Think of vultures, right? Eagles, predatory birds, right? Uh, God says, hungry? (laughs) I got a feast for you. It's all the dead, wicked armies. All those wicked armies that tried to destroy Israel, that tried to fight against Messiah. They're dead. Wow. So birds of prey are invited to the great supper of God, and this will, of course, be the war of wars, pitting the coalition of nations, and we might surmise their demonic co-conspirators, against Messiah and his heavenly forces. So horrific will be the bloodshed that an angel is pictured in the apocalypse, summoning vultures and other birds of prey to a supper of their very own, the corpses that will cover the land. Following the angelic announcement, John witnesses the future battle for himself. So now as we come to verses 19 through 21, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Everything doesn't follow an exact sequence. So now John is going back and seeing the battle taking place, verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth And their armies, let me stop for a moment. Who is the beast? Say it so I can hear it. Antichrist, yeah, don't worry worry about getting it wrong. The Antichrist. Um, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Doesn't sound like hip, groovy Jesus to me. Does it sound like that to you? This is the word. Now, I have an assignment for you. I have an assignment for those of you watching. Um, do you remember the original Mission Impossible episodes where your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go do this, 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 and this, and this? This tape will self-destruct in five seconds. And then, um, We thought it was so futuristic that they're using magnetic tape to get messages. <laughs> We thought Star Trek was futuristic because they had, hey, Scotty. I could be talking to Scotty and looking at him. All right, anyway. So, um, but my assignment for all of you is to read Psalm 2 and then come back and read Revelation chapter 19, verse, verses uh, basically 17 through 21 through the end. Read Psalm 2 which begins, why do the nations rage and the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That's as far as I'll go with Psalm 2. But I want you to read it. Read Psalm 2 with Revelation 19. The futility of opposing the Messiah and the long history of mankind, you know, um, in rebellion against God, right? Um, alienation from God, warring against God, defiance, long history of that. And did you notice what's missing here in all of this? There's no, like, third way. There's no neutrality. Well, I'm not for them, but I'm not for him either. Doesn't work that way. Neutrality is a myth where Messiah is concerned. And again, the ferocity and the finality of judgment. And there's, it's a twofold death. Death in war, death by sword. And then the lake of fire, which is the second death. Okay, so we finished Revelation chapter 19. Rabbi Jerry gets the, the really juicy part, chapter 20. Um, and chapter 20 is really cool, but it's still more of what's going on in terms of the conflict. But then there's the victory. And Jer Rabbi Jerry, I will not steal your thunder. There's just one thing I want to preview. It is not Jesus who is going to defeat Satan. It's not Jesus who's going to defeat him. And I'll say no more. We always think it's Jesus against Satan. Jesus is Lord. Satan is an angel. It's going to be angel on angel. I'll say no more. All right. Um, any questions that you guys might have in terms of what we covered tonight?
Um, and while you're thinking, if you have any questions, any questions from uh, those of you watching uh, online. Uh, I see a comment from uh, Wilbur. So we know that the tribe of Judah is special since they were chosen ultimately because this is the lineage that eventually led to King David and ultimately King Yeshua. My thought is, what religion is the father? I believe he isn't constrained by any earthly religion, especially since he exists outside of time and space. Well, I hear what you're saying. In a sense, institutional Christianity is not where it's at. It's Jesus. Christianity rightly defined is faith that he is the Messiah, the promised one, the son of the living God who died for our sins, who rose again from the, from the dead on the third day, who ascended to heaven, who will come back in power and glory. I mean, that's the essence of Christ, biblical Christianity. But in that sense, yeah, I mean, the Lord is outside of time and space and creation, so he's beyond religion anyway. But that's not to say that religion is unimportant or that we should shun religion per se. What we want to have is religion properly defined. And in one sense, James gave us a definition for that. We want to have the right religion. Not so that I can say, I'm right, they're wrong. In the end, the only one who's right is him. And the question is not, is he on my side? It's, am I on his side? Am I walking with him? So in that sense, I can agree. All right. Uh, Brian, did you have a question you wanted to ask? Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that mean he's got a tat, a tattoo? Is Jesus inked? I don't think we're going to be looking at his bare thigh. I think he's going to be fully robed, fully clothed, long pants or leggings or whatever they would be. And I think on that it's written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Or maybe it's not. Maybe it's written on him, but it wasn't tattooed on him. By the way, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not going to judge anybody who's got tattoos. That is like so far down the list of priorities when we're talking about serving the Lord. Frankly, I enjoy looking at people's ink. I, I'm not inked. But uh, anyway, and I don't want to get off on this, so please don't start with the whole shimmy. Okay, let's see. Um, I'm looking for if there are any other questions. Uh, Gary says, it's hard to differentiate between the angel of the Lord versus the Lord in some verses. Yeah, there are passages both in Old and New Testament where you have the angel of the Lord, and yet the angel of the Lord is speaking as the Lord. And so most theologians believe that this is an oblique reference to Jesus. It's sort of Messiah without saying it's the Messiah. Kind of a more humble way of expressing it. So there's, there's that. All right, let's see, I guess that's it, and it is 7.30, and I think they need to come in and rehearse. So let's pray. Lord our God, eternal King and soon coming conqueror, we thank you. We thank you for what's ahead, even though it's going to get worse before it gets better. We thank you that on the other side of this, 
Messiah Yeshua will rule and reign in righteousness. And we will see him. And we will be in your presence at one point. Finally, we'll be with you forever. And we may have good imaginations, but we just can't even imagine what that's going to be like. But may the promise of Messiah's second coming, the vanquishing of evil across the world, the establishing of righteousness and justice, may that animate us to be about the work you called us to do, to tell people about Yeshua, to invite others to consider the gospel, to lead others to righteousness, to disciple them. Help us, Lord God, to renew our efforts to do these things. To you be all the glory. Hashem Yeshua, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys. And thank you for watching. And hopefully, uh, Rabbi Jerry will be with you next Wednesday night.